0: Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 18th of December with myself, Andries Vantanar, and my colleagues, Peter White and Harry Morgan. In this episode, we discuss the future of offshore wind, especially floating wind, which will be very important in Japan and a few other markets. How about the the forthcoming Rethink Energy report? Wind blows zero carbon power to two-thirds of global mix by 2030.
1: We've got a much larger forecast for wind power by 2030 than any other analyst, I think, saying that... um Two thirds of the world's power by 2030 will come from clean energy sources. Something that is far from what other companies are saying. So essentially, what we're saying is that there's going to be nearly two terawatts of wind by 2030, which is pretty much a threefold, uh, more than a threefold growth from where we are today. And while in terms of capacity, that's less than we're predicting for solar, uh, in terms of generation, um, it's actually larger. So we've, it's also overtaking nuclear and, and hydropower. So by 2030, wind will be the largest source of clean power. Realistically. There probably will be more gas-fired power plants just due to the the ones still being built in Asia. But in terms of sort of the way things are moving, wind will certainly be on track to have the largest sort of share of the
0: generation mix at that point in time. I wouldn't think anything that's in Asia that hasn't had a final investment decision will get one. Uh, I think you're only talking about plants that have already already being built.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think that those are pl- those are plants that are still sort of and in the sort of confirmed pipeline that are going to be built over the sort of next five years which will then still be in the energy mix in 2030. But I think the fact that we've seen Joe Biden come into the presidency, uh, the green stimulus from the EU, sort of a real drive for hydrogen and powered by offshore wind, as we've seen this week in Japan, uh, I think those things are really driving sort of an increased outlook for wind, as we said about offshore a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think the situation we're in now with low interest rates and this sort of real excitement means that we'll really see investment flood in over the next couple of years. I think we'll see a dip in installations from 2022 and 2023 due to as like subsidies start to phase out and as companies rush to install ahead of that. But the excitement we're seeing now and the investment we see as a result of the stimulus packages, we'll see projects come online from sort of the early 2023 and those sort of start to trickle on from there. So that's when we'll really start to see the market uptake.
0: I, I can't understand... Uh- why it takes so long to permit an offshore wind farm and and i can't understand why we would continue to let it take so long do you see that changing
1: yeah i think there's a lot of um a lot of calls from the industry at the moment for it to speed up that i mean we're seeing it in america massively i think just the fact that they haven't got any substantial offshore wind farms that they're spending ages with this um the bureau of ocean energy management are spending ages with the sort of environmental assessment thing I think it's sadly off the back of what we've seen with hydropower and how that's really affected fish migration is that people are suddenly thinking oh we don't want to make the same mistake with offshore wind because these projects are so large so we're seeing a lot of these impact assessments being quite rigorous and I think in general what we're seeing is that those lead times are coming down I know um, the plans that Japan launched this week very much came with the sort of rhetoric that they're going to streamline the process and try and bring down the lead time for offshore wind down from what can be as long as 12 years at the moment down to seven eight years but i think a lot of that will be cut from the early planning stages
0: if you are the bureau of ocean management surely you know which parts of the sea are being used by the military you have a pretty good idea of where people fish you should be preparing areas which don't coincide with either of those proactively rather than sitting there saying, well, you convince us that it will do no harm. You, you should be saying, you yeah, know, your job is to manage the ocean. You, you tell us where to put them and you bring them up for auction, those areas, and you do it as fast as you can. It only takes you a couple of years to measure the quality and the consistency of the wind. Why would it take any longer to to, to permit? It shouldn't.
1: I think largely it's, it's proving that it's not going to impact other industries. And I think governments need to start taking an approach that we saw in France a couple of weeks ago with the Sandbrick uh, wind farm that had massive uproar from local fishermen that has now just been, sort of, has been permitted by the governments regardless. I know in the US there's a lot of discussion around... Sort of the military activity, but I think it, yeah, it has there has to be some sort of ongoing discussion between the two and, and some sort of level of compromise from the military waters so that we can actually build out the offshore wind power we need in in the US at least.
0: You said in about Japan that its its water depths go like off a cliff beyond 200 meters from the shore. So does that mean how much of it will have to be floating wind?
1: So that's yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. I think it's something that we're we are probably also a victim of at the moment is that we're probably under forecasting it I think um, in terms of offshore wind as, as a toast I think we're, we're on the right track but I think floating wind probably will end up being a larger constituent than most people think I think once you have the cost reductions in the platforms installation costs and the infrastructure requirements you need for floating wind are so much less I mean you can essentially just pull you can assemble them onshore and pull them into place rather than having to have these massive installation vessels offshore but I think floating wind will become cheaper than conventional fixed base wind um, at some point towards the end of the decade. So I think that's when we'll really start to see it take off. I think that's what um, is been really being seen in Japan by the rate at which they think installation will accelerate beyond 2030. I mean, I think they're saying, yeah, 10 gigawatts for 2030 and up to 45 gigawatts by 2040. So it's, just, it's a huge acceleration between that uh, 2030 decade, which will be led by floating wind in that case. Um,
0: So the 10 gigawatt figure is partly just a limit of how much um, shallow depth water do we have?
1: Yeah, so Japan has launched its first fixed based offshore wind auction um, back in November and they, they actually released the first floating one back in June, but it is limited how much fixed base window will be able to have off the sort of north coast there's also there's other issues as well there there's ports of electricity connection so that's something that needs to be addressed before more wind can be put there but I think the bulk of it once it's installed towards the end of the decade will start sort of edge towards floating wind I mean we can see that reflected in the fact that the average price they're looking for is around 77 to 87 dollars per megawatt hour which is far higher than what most people are expecting fixed-based offshore wind to be in that time frame. So that really does indicate that they're expecting floating wind to get there. But realistically, again, probably a, a cautious cost estimate from them. I think with the interest we're seeing from the oil majors, that have got a lot of experience operating offshore. When they start piling into offshore wind and start piling money into the companies developing floating platforms, we'll see costs fall as rapidly as we have within offshore wind uh, fixed-based offshore wind there. And we'll see prices achievable that are much lower than that even in japan
0: and we got the impression when we spoke to principal power a while back that they did floating platforms for oil that's where they got their experience from this was no different and that we would see costs as low as 44 dollars per megawatt hour by 2030 on a floating platform are you saying that's out of reach
1: no, not at all. I think it's just a case of pushing it to scale, and I think when we're with these markets that we're seeing emerging in Southeast Asia, that they will start to take off. The fact is, at the moment, we're in a in a situation where we've got so many different designs for floating platforms that none are really being pushed to scale. So obviously, they are very expensive. I think once the market starts to consolidate, which is something we'll we'll expect to see within the next year, I imagine. But um, I thought
0: most of the trials, I mean, had been won by two or three people, principal power being one of them.
1: Yeah, exactly. So this is the consolidation we're starting to see, but I think because we haven't seen that many commercial projects proposed yet, it's hard to see which are going to sort of lead going forward, whether or not it's going to be the sort of Spa Boy designs or the sort of Tetra platforms. But it's once these start to be rolled out of scale and we've got a few major players developing them and consolidating the smaller manufacturing facilities, then that's when we start to see the, the costs really fall. But the Spa um,
0: Boy ones have the issue that you, you can't drag them into dry dock to fix them. You have to leave them where they are. And you have to change the whole basis of your maintenance, and that's one of the big cost benefits of the principal power design—that you can just drag them in with a tugboat, uh, fix them, and drag them back out again.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there are benefits to the spar in terms of um, certain markets. I know in places like Norway, you've got water that drop off so quickly that you can have them service fairly close to shore but I think when, you, yeah, when you've got the mass market looking at potentially using considering floating or fixed base for certain projects that's when it starts to become much more preferable to have a more sort of flexible arrangement where you can tow things into into shore and that's when floating then does have its advantage over so a fixed we,
0: base. When you look at floating wind, the, the only there was no forecast before we came along. Like, nobody had done a forecast on floating wind prior to rethink energy uh, coming along, and we came up with something that was about fifty percent more than the only forecast that was in existence, which was actually not from a forecasting company, but was from Equinor, who had the Sparboy de- de- design, who um, were trying to seed the market, and they said twelve gigawatts by twenty thirty, and and it's clearly going to be substantially ahead of that it's going to be ahead of where our forecast was um so this is a good example of how rethink energy is getting closer to the real number on its first outing
1: yeah i mean it's just a case of trying not to undershoot and i think the rate at which forecasts are increasing from other companies is just shows how often they're undershooting. i think you just completely destroys, destroys any credibility in what they're saying in the future. Um, I think you can always just assume that numbers are going to be greater when they come round. I mean, th- this is why they try to focus on forecasts that are two, three years ahead because that way they can state it with pretty much certainty. But as soon as you start seeing them projecting out to 2030, 2040 with current installation rates, that yeah, there's no way with such an emerging market that we keep, that they're going to be hitting the nail on the head.
0: They say, well, we've got to forecast based on the people that we know are already doing this the number of people that have development plans, we can't forecast on anything else. But of course, they, they undershoot every time and we mustn't do that. And we've got to be a bit braver with, with some of our forecasts because of that. Uh, I think now we can see that, what, what, what if you had to pull a number out of the air for 2040 on floating wind, what, what would you come up with?
1: Um I'd imagine we'd be in the several hundreds of gigawatts. I really wouldn't be surprised if we be sort of seeing sort of 500 gigawatts of floating wind by by 2040.
0: See, that's just an enormous number. Nobody, nobody, and that's the worry, is that if you say that and you believe it and it happens, no one buys your research because they buy the research from Wood McKenzie that says it's only going to be 12 or 15 gigawatts, and then they change it to 20, and then they change it to 25, and then they change it to 35. And they they somehow have grown used to that idea of planning without any confidence, <laughs> as opposed to having a, a good idea of yeah, and it's all about return on investment if you can make money from doing this then more people will join the race and if you if you can come up with a slightly better design then more people will join the platform race and it just we've seen this in so many other markets that that's what happens but as soon as there's really there's money to be won and it's large amounts of money everyone piles in and, and we have to expect that? Yeah, I think it's a weird catch-22 at
1: the moment where we've got policymakers waiting for signals from these analyst houses that it's going to be possible to reach these these sort of large targets before they release them. And then the policymakers are also basing their forecasts on the current targets. I mean, that's why we've seen such a heavy increase in expectations for things this year is because we've seen countries like China um, announce they're going to reach net zero by 2060. And then, and then suddenly everybody's like, oh, what's going on here? We need to increase our projections for clean power so that China can reach this point. But if you thought about it, properly we'd ex- expected china to release sort of the 2060 next zero date within the next sort of year or two anyway so for seeing those sort of events and for seeing things like the uk will obviously bring forward its ban on uh, petrol and diesel cars that i think uh, is often overlooked in these sort of things and then i think yeah accelerating policy is something that needs to be considered much more in in projecting things forward i guess
0: and do you, do you think there'll be a ban on, when, when do you think there'll be a ban on ice cars in um, america
1: I mean, it's it's a difficult one because obviously there's a much more gas-guzzling mindset, I guess, over there. Um, not to be stereotypical, but I imagine we'll see it sort of led by individual states around sort of the same 2030 mark that we're seeing in the UK. I think California will probably implement something over the next sort of year or two. Um, I know they're sort of airing ideas about it at the moment, um, and I think most states will follow suit by 2035 and um, probably sort of the later ones by 2040.
0: So it comes, yeah, done by, you're right, absolutely right. It's what they've done, um, all, all the moves have been made by uh, states and it's been really the Sierra Club uh, trying to convince all the governors of all the states to get on board with climate change and they've done a great job there. California already has a date in mind, they've already published. Where California goes, you know, two or three states, n- neighbouring states follow straight away and then and then it starts to become infectious. Yeah, so I would think by 2040, no, it's the, the, the thing about cars is when you make an engine, you make an engine not for just delivering cars in France or delivering cars in Germany, that engine has to have a global applicability so that you, you make... Uh, perhaps three plants that build the engine and they're in different parts of the world, but they're the same design. So you don't put extra R&D into, into having a, an engine in Europe, an engine in China, a different engine in America. If you are faced with Europe closing down all of your uh, your internal combustion engine cars, then your R&D is, is only uh, based in America, unless you can ship cars to China in, in volume, which you can't. So you end up saying, hang about, my cost of doing business now has just gone up through the roof because my R&D is spread over less sales because I'm not allowed to sell these outside of America. Actually, why don't I just get rid of the ICE cars and sell more EVs? Because by that stage, you'll already have a 25, 30% penetration uh, of electric vehicles and the public will accept that. And so I could see people dropping out of the internal combustion engine market um, with the consequent knock on effect on oil companies and their share price in by before 2030
1: yeah so, definitely so, i think when you when you see companies like ford and their massive presence in europe i think they're going to have to suddenly change rapidly i mean they're not at the moment but they're going to have to have some sort of change um obviously general motors as you said have changed their their outlook hugely over the past year over the uh, yeah over the past year so um,
0: ford had to close their They built, they had this new engine factory they were going to build in, uh, they were building in, was it in Wales? And they they had another version of it in Spain, I think, and they just closed it. They just sent everyone home and they said no, and they blamed it on Brexit. But it turns out that that, that that was fuel efficiency. They were going to have a car that did 80 miles per gallon. And they thought that was the answer when they, you know, five years ago when they planned it as actually the answer was design an ev and uh, and so they, they they've already started changing the shape of their organization to prepare for this